Chapter Seven of All the Brothers Were Valiant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. All the Brothers Were Valiant by Ben Ames Williams. Chapter Seven. Mark Shore held something like a reception on the Nathan Ross all that first day. He went forward among the men to greet old friends and meet new ones, and came back and complimented Joel on the quality of his crew. "'You've made good men of them,' he said. "'Those that weren't good men before.' He listened, with a smile half-contemptuous, to Jim Finch's somewhat slavish phrases of welcome and admiration, and he talked with Vard, the morose second mate, so gaily that even Vard was cozened at last into a grin. Old Hooper was pathetically glad to see him. Hooper had been mate of the ship on which Mark started out as a boy, and he liked to hark back to those old days. Young Dick Morrill, on his trips from the shore, gave Mark frank worship. Joel saw all this. He could not help seeing it and he told himself again and again that it was only to be expected. Mark had captained this ship, had captained these men, on their last cruise. They had thought him dead. It was only natural that they should welcome him back to life again. But even while he gave himself this reassurance, he knew that it was untrue. There was more than mere welcome in the attitude of the men. There was more than admiration. There was a quality of awe that was akin to worship, and there was beneath this awe a lively curiosity as to what Mark would do. They knew him for a quick man, dominant, one with the will to lead, and now he found himself supplanted, dependent on the word of his own younger brother. Everyone knew that Mark and Joel had always been rather enemies than comrades, so now they wondered and waited and watched with all their eyes. Joel saw them, by twos and threes, whispering together about the ship, and he knew what it was they were asking each other. Of all those on the Nathan Ross that day, Mark himself seemed least conscious of the dramatic possibilities of the situation. He was glad to be back among friends, but beyond that he did not go. He gave Joel an exaggerated measure of respect, so extreme that it was worse than scorn or mockery. Otherwise he took no notice of the potentialities created by his return. Pris had planned to go ashore in the afternoon, but Mark dissuaded her. This was not difficult. He did it so laughingly and so dexterously that Pris changed her mind without knowing just why she did so. Mark took it upon himself to make up for her disappointment. They were together most of the long, hot afternoon. Joel could hear their laughter now and then. He had expected to go ashore with Pris, but when she came to him and said, "'Joel, Mark says it's just dirty and hot and ugly ashore, and I'm not going.' 
he changed his mind. There was no need of his making the trip, after all. Vard and Morell had brought out water, towing long strings of almost filled casks behind their boats, and boats from the shore had come off to sell fresh food. So, at dusk, the anchor came up, and the Nathan Ross spread her dingy sails and stalked out of the harbor with the utmost dignity in every stiff line of her, and the night behind them swallowed up the island. Mark and Priss were astern to watch it blend in the darkness and lose itself, and Priss, when their last glimpse of it faded, heard the man draw a deep breath of something like relief. She looked up at him with wide, curious eyes. "'What is it?' she asked softly. "'Were you unhappy there?' Mark laughed aloud. "'My dear Priss,' he said, in the elder brother manner he affected toward her. "'My dear Priss, the South Sea Islands are no place for a white man, especially when he is alone.' I'm glad to get back in the smell of oil with an honest deck underfoot, and I don't mind saying so. Priss shuddered and wrinkled her nose. Ugh, how I hate that smell, she exclaimed. But, Mark, tell me where you've been and what you did and everything. Why won't you tell? He wagged his head at her severely. "'Children,' he said, "'should be seen and not heard.' She stamped her foot. "'I'm not a child. I'm a woman.' He bent toward her suddenly, his dark eyes so close to hers that she could see the flickering flame which played in them and the twist of his smile. "'I wonder,' he whispered. "'Oh, I wonder if you are.' She was frightened, deliciously. Mark had persisted all day long in his refusal to tell her of himself. He had dropped a sentence now and then that brought to life in her imagination a strange, wild picture. But always he set a bar upon his lips, caught back the words, refused to explain what it was he had meant to say. When she persisted, he laughed at her and told her he only did it to be mysterious. "'Mystery is always interesting, you understand,' he explained. "'And I wish to be very interesting to you, Priss.' She looked around the after-deck for Joel, but he was below in the cabin, and she decided abruptly that she must go down. They had bought chickens at Tubuai, and they had two of them, boiled, for supper that night in the cabin. It was a feast, after the long months of sober diet, and the presence of Mark made it something more. He was a good talker, and without revealing anything of the months of his disappearance, he nevertheless told them stories that held each one breathless with interest. But after supper he went on deck with Finch, and Joel and Priss sat in the cabin astern for a while. And Joel wrote up in the ship's log the story of his brother's return. 
Priss read it over his shoulder, and afterwards she clung close to Joel. "'He's a terribly overwhelming man, isn't he?' she whispered. Joel looked down at her and smiled thoughtfully. "'Aye, Mark's a big man,' he agreed. "'Big in many ways. "'But you'll be used to him presently, Priss.' When she prepared to go to bed, he bade her good night and left her and went on deck, and Priss, in her narrow bunk in the cabin at the side of the ship, lay wide-eyed with many thoughts stirring in her small head. She was still awake when she heard them come down into the main cabin together, Joel and Mark. The walls were thin, she could hear their words, and she heard Mark ask, "'Sure Priss is asleep? "'There are parts not for the pretty ears of a bride, Joel.' Priss was not asleep, but when Joel came to see, she closed her eyes, and lay as still as still, scarce breathing. Joel bent over her softly, and he touched her head clumsily with his hand, and patted it, and went away again, closing her door behind him. She heard him tell Mark, "'Aye, she's fast asleep.' The brothers sat by Joel's desk in the cabin across the stern, and Mark, without preamble, told his story there. Priss, ten feet away, heard every word, and she lay huddled beneath the blankets, eyes staring upward into the darkness of her cabin, and as she listened, she shuddered and trembled and shrank at the terror and wonder and ugliness of the tale he told. No Desdemona ever listened with such half-caught breath. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline